Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason along with Sue Kalinsky. Sue, I am in a very cranky mood this morning. I know. I didn't see the whole Rams game. I tuned in um, just as the Titans were scoring um, their 20th point. <laughs> yes, yes. It was a really rough night at uh, SoFi Stadium last night, and we were out there late. Uh, I blame it on not stepdad Leo, who is a 49ers fan and was at the game last night. And so I think he brought the evil 49ers juju to SoFi Stadium. Oh, that's terrible. So is he going to be nixed from future games? Never going again. Never (laughs) going again. That's it for not stepdad Leo. But so what do you think? What do you think happened? What happened? uh, I think they muddled up the uh, offensive line and they gave Stafford no protection whatsoever. And he made some absolutely boneheaded, ridiculous plays. Um, Really lost his composure uh, through a, a pick six and also threw a ball out of the end zone. I was just, saw that one in the uh, replay. Just terrible, just looped it uh, to uh, to a Tennessee defensive back. And and that wound up, go- I think we would have won the game had it not been for those two plays. Yeah. So is that, that like completely out of character that he would throw an errant pass like that on yes. his back? It, we've not seen, I mean, we've been talking, you know, Matthew Stafford MVP. He's having an MVP type season. Last night, he probably took himself out of the MVP race because he did it on national TV on a Sunday night, you know, Sunday night football, number one, number one rated show on TV. So I have a feeling he's probably done in that race, but no, completely uncharacteristic. He's a totally well, solid quarterback. Their offensive line, because I saw some of the Cowboys game. Yes. It was reminiscent of how the Cowboys offensive line gave no protection for Dak. To, 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 yeah, to Dak. I mean, it was yeah. unbelievable. I mean, he was running around. The entire game. Yeah, yeah. Well, on to brighter things. You ran a half marathon yesterday. I did indeed. Now, was that part of the LA marathon? No, um, there were two marathons uh, going on simultaneously. Actual um, yesterday, so the OC, the LA marathon doesn't have a half marathon. Okay. They're just a marathon. So, um, but the OC was both, and um, yeah, it was. Um, it was it was crazy. I mean, I woke up at uh, like a quarter to four mm. and met uh, friends of mine here in, in Long Beach and drove to um, the county fair and um, fairgrounds. Yep. And um, then um, there was only like three of our running group running in this race. Okay. And one of them ran very, very fast. So I wasn't going to run with her. Two of the others run slower than I do. So I wasn't going to run with them. I actually drank caffeine in the morning, which I don't drink caffeine anymore, but there was no decaf in my house. So I was charged when I nice. got to the race. And I said to my friend who I was going to run with, I said, I, I got to go. I got to be a lone wolf on this one. And um, and it was great. And, you know, I'm looking at my watch and I was like, wow, you know, I mean, I was making unbelievable time because, I mean, I do the run walk, but whenever it's a down slope, Yep. I I run through the walks. Oh, okay. So I was making up a lot of time that way. Yeah, we should explain. So you run walk the marathon. You right. like So 
there's, like, there's intervals. It's called it's called the Galloway method, and it's it was created by uh, an ex Olympic runner. And um, I question, by the way, if this really counts as running in a marathon, since you're walking for for because you you run for like a minute and then walk for two minutes. Is that how? It no, goes? no, walk for thirty seconds. Walk for ah, well, th- so there's less walking. There's less walking. Yes, yes, yes. But you know, like some people run for 15 seconds and run and um, run for 15 and walk for 30. And that's what this woman was going to be doing. I was like, I can't do that. Um, when I first started, I was running for 90 seconds and walking 30. Um, anyway, so um, so I did it in um, 246, which is a personal best for me. Oh, nice. Nice. But I kept on thinking I was going to make it to, you know, 230 was going to was was my target. Because of the and- caffeine? No, just because um, I mean, my, my target when I started the race, just in my mind, I want, well, I always want to come in under um, three hours. Right. Um, so, um, but as I was running, I was, I saw my pace and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get in in 2.30. And there's like a couple of hills in this race. And there's like at the 11 mile mark, there's this like deadly hill. And I was like, oh, there's no way in the world I'm running up that. So I had to walk up that. So that so took t- some time off. I'll tell you a story. So when I was in high school, I didn't play football. I ran cross country in the fall. And I I was a decent runner. I wasn't like the star of the team, but I was a decent runner. I lettered and all that stuff. And the day, and I hated it. I hated it every single day. And really? so why'd you do it? So I'd have a sport in the fall. I wanted a fall oh. sport. And so, but the day I finished cross country, I never ran a long distance again. Mm. That that was like it. I never was going to run. I haven't run since. I have no interest in running. Uh, but that just, that turned me on running was, was running cross country. Because you'd run, you know, five miles, seven miles, nine miles a day. And it was like, ah, this is too much. I just, I grew to hate running. But I yeah. could probably do it your way. You know, walk a little, run a little, walk a little, run a, run a little. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. No, I couldn't. It's it's still it still does take it out of you. You know, some people say, "Oh God, you you know," and I you always joke with me about it. Oh, you walk, you know, you're walking some of the time. But I mean, I'm making better time than a lot of people that run the whole thing. Sure, sure. You know, I'm getting recharged. I guess you know. Every, well, congratulations! Um, Did you get you. a medal? Did you get a participation ribbon? I got a medal. Oh, I got nice. a medal, and then you get swag. You know, I got a cool shirt. I got a cool T-shirt, and then I got a cool um, like zip up. Um, like long sleeve oh, nice. um, shirt, which nice. was cool. Yeah. So, uh, Sue, I've mentioned this many times on the show, but you know, uh, I'm, you know, I work for ESPN and, uh, and I cover sports for a living, but I have got a Broadway gene. I love Broadway. So I'm excited about today. Our guest uh, won the 2016 Tony Award for writing the Broadway phenomenon, Dear Evan Hansen. He's also been a writer for the acclaimed Masters of Sex and was the showrunner for the fantastic miniseries Fosse Verdon. His new project is adapting Jonathan Larson's Tick, Tick, Boom for the big screen. It will be in theaters on November the 12th before premiering on Netflix November the 19th. Stephen Levinson joins us. Stephen, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So I'll tell you right up front, I'm, uh, I've got the Broadway gene. I'm a Broadway nerd. I love Broadway. I want to know from you, what was your first Broadway moment, play, musical, the, the one that, that made you say, I, I, I want to do that? 
You know, there were there were many along the way. the the first The first piece of theater that really moved me, which is uh, whatever, whatever. Now thinking, uh, was Starlight Express, the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical on roller skates. Yes, um, which I saw. I think I was seven years old, but that just blew me away. I mean, as a seven year old, that was that seemed like the pinnacle of live entertainment people on roller skates singing um, and they were trains. Uh, they were playing trains. Um, so the whole thing was amazing to me. Um, and then I think, but the thing that really uh, made me fall in love with musicals specifically, I think was rent yeah. uh, as it was for so many people uh, in my generation. But, but seeing that for the first time, it, it was the first musical I'd seen. I was a teenager and I was kind of angsty and, as teenagers are. And I, I think I'd felt like musicals were sort of lame. And I was, I was going through this phase of, you know, kind of feeling disparaging towards them. And then I saw Rent and it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. And I, I kind of didn't know musicals could do that or be that. Um, and it felt like, oh, this is a form that can be raw and edgy and interesting and talk about grown up themes and have music that I actually want to listen to. And, uh, that doesn't feel like kind of um, old fashioned or or like my parents' music. Um, so that was the one that really got me passionate about musical theater. So my first moment was I in 1982 senior school trip from Toledo, Ohio. I saw Jennifer Holiday do Dreamgirls, and I was oh. like, "Oh my god, oh, this is!" But That's when amazing. I when I lived in New York. When I was having a bad week, Rent was in the middle of its long run. I think it ran for nine years. Rent was in the middle of its long run. And when I had a bad week, I would just go see Rent because I thought it was so uplifting. And so, you know, no day but today, I took that as a message. And so Rent is my favorite Broadway musical of all time. Why do you think it resonates the way it does? Well, I think actually something you're saying about it is something I hadn't quite thought about, but I think it's so true that there it's a it's a dark show in a lot of ways and it talks about really dark, upsetting uh, ideas and themes and there's death in it and drugs. Um, but it is ultimately a very uplifting show. It ultimately leaves you with a lot of hope um, and it's filled with love and um, beauty. And it is kind of a positive show ultimately in spite of, in spite of all of the things that it talks about. Um, uh, and so I think that has a lot to do with its staying power. I think ultimately it comes down to the music too. I mean, that score is just so captivating and energizing and just powerful. Um, there's, there's never been anything quite like it. I got to see um, Dear Evan Hansen, the LA production. Mm. And friends of mine, son played Evan Hansen, Ben oh, Ross. Yeah, sure. Who I saw last night was in Tick, Tick, Boom, which I was so excited. Uh-huh. I knew that he had yes. gotten a part in a film and I didn't remember what it was. So it was just a lovely, lovely surprise to, to see him in it. Um, and I, I know you, you have, you've obviously written some, you know, plays, but you've all also written for, for TV as well. Mm-hmm. And is one type of writing more accessible than the, than the other? Because like when you write a book for a play, to me, it seems like the words are more literal than how they are in a in a movie or or a TV series. Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. I, I when you're writing something for the stage, 
what you are writing is mostly what's going to happen and what you're going to see. You know, the words are mostly what you have in theater. It's, it's the dialogue is everything. It's so you are creating the story really uh, out of whole cloth. Um, whereas film and TV does feel a little bit more like what you're doing is providing a blueprint. Um, you're, you're sort of creating the, the map that then the director and the actors and the cinematographer and all of the dozens of people that work on a set are going to bring to life. So it feels a little bit more collaborative, I suppose, in a way, doing screenwriting. Um, it's a lot more like you're uh, a part of a huge machine, whereas with theater, it's a much smaller machine. And it does feel like the script is, is everything in a lot of ways. Um, so there's more pressure on it in some ways. Um, but so they both, they, they have their, their pluses and minuses, I would say, or the things um, it's really exciting to get to be part of a huge process and to, um, to, to make a blueprint for a gigantic building, which is what it feels like. So I'm a huge Dear Evan fan, uh, Hansen fan. And I, in the morning when I do my bike ride, um, you will be found and <laughs> tapping on a window are both in my mix almost every day. It's amazing. I love, I love that show, but I'm curious. And I, I don't want to be reductive here, but the the story, you know, uh, boy commits suicide, uh, kid pretends to be friends with him, fools parent Elaine. That story, where did that story come from? Well, the story, you know, it began with uh, Benj Pasek, uh, one of the songwriters, who um, in high school, a fellow classmate of his died um, from a drug overdose. And it was someone who had not had a lot of friends. It was sort of an outsider, an outcast. Um, nobody really knew him. Um, and in the wake of his death, Benj kind of watched as everyone kind of after the fact claimed to have been friends with him or claimed some kind of connection to this uh, tragedy. Um, it, you know, even like oh, when we were four, we were really close or our lockers were really close to each other. Like everybody wanted a piece of this terrible thing that had happened. And uh, that caused Benj to think about that phenomenon and that idea. And then in the years between that happening and, and me meeting him and Justin, the other songwriter, uh, social media exploded. And that idea of people kind of glomming onto tragedy and um, what, what we would call like sort of exhibitionistic grief, hmm. you know, like, like whenever a celebrity died, people seemed to, to rush to, to Facebook and Twitter to kind of talk about themselves, ultimately. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that, that was really where that, that idea came from, was like, well, what is that about? Um, why do we, you know, and, and we wanted to try to get at it in a way that was not judgmental and that was not, um, kind of making fun of that phenomenon because we saw it in ourselves. You know, we, we felt the same pull to doing that and we're curious about what is that? Uh, why that impulse? Um, and so that, that was the question that led to the creation of Evan and to that whole story. 
Hmm. So when you're when you're writing a book and someone is writing lyrics, what what is the collaboration like? Are you kind of off in your own space writing the book, and then the the lyric the uh the, who's writing the, the the artist who's writing the music is doing that separate? I mean, is there is there when do you guys kind of come together? You know, I think I think it's different for every project, but I do. The thing that I found surprising when I first began doing it um, that I didn't expect is that it is so collaborative from the beginning. Um, and it's not really kind of compartmentalized the way that you would think. And so like with Dear Evan Hansen, since we were creating this original story, it was the three of us, uh, the two songwriters and I, from the beginning, we were sitting around hashing out this story together and talking about, well, it could be this or it could be that. Um, and really kind of building the, the foundation together over many months of just conversation before really writing down anything. Um, and then we got to a place where it was sort of like, well, we know the skeleton of what we want to do and somebody has to jump first. Uh, and so it, it, we just decided that I would start writing. Hmm. And so I actually wrote the first act of the show as a play. Um, and there were spots where we had talked about, oh, this might be a good musical moment in our story, or this might be a good moment. Uh, and in those places, I, I would either just write, like, here's the song that we talked about, uh, or I would do kind of long, overwritten monologues that, that were song-like to suggest, well, this is where I think the character is. This is, this is what I think the inner journey of this moment is. Um, and then I shared that with Benj and Justin. And like from that point on, it becomes really blurry where, where one person's work stops and another's begins. Like, because then they would have ideas for songs, which would change the scenes, which would then spur the creation of new songs. And it just becomes this like endless back and forth. So what's the moment like when you show the musical for the first time? Like I'm assuming that you workshopped it and you did. Yeah. Uh, what, what's the moment when an audience sees it for the first time like for, for you as a writer? Terrifying, <laughs> um, <laughs> nauseating. Um, no, I mean, it is, I wish there was more positive excitement. It is, it is such a terrifying feeling, um, especially, especially with a musical where musicals are, are these strange alchemical things where a play, you, you sort of have a good sense hearing it with a group of actors sitting around a table with no props, no sets. So a, like first preview we ever had of Dear Evan Hansen, we were just holding our breaths um, and just had no idea how an audience would respond. You have no idea if an audience is going to understand what you're trying to do, if they're going to follow the character's journey, especially the journey was so complicated and tortuous uh, with Evan. Um, and then it's there's a lot of excitement and a lot of relief and a lot of uh, gratification, hopefully. Um, and then, and then you really, it's amazing. Something that I think audience members don't always understand is, you know, especially like with, with films I've, I've learned in this process, they do a lot of testing and a lot of focus groups where you get um, people sort of saying, well, this is what I think. And this is what I think. And it's, it's all interesting, but the truth is like everything you need to know, you learn just by sitting in an audience and experiencing what you've written with them. Hmm. Like I know what works and doesn't work from listening to the audience. Like I don't need to then hear it, you know, 
said aloud, like you get it. You just feel it. You, you're sitting there with them and, and you know the parts when people are leaning in and the parts when people are coughing uh, <laughs> or, you know, uh, shifting in their seats. Like you just get it uh, through osmosis. And so that's a lot of what that preview process is about is, is sitting there with the audience and, and trying to feel what they're feeling. Now, that was a, a big part of uh, Tick, Tick, Boom with Jonathan Larson when he was showcasing his his piece, his first piece. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, just seeing the struggle that he was having with, with trying to write the book for writing the lyrics for that one song, you know, mm-hmm. and I loved how he decided to go for a swim yeah. to, to get inspiration. I'm a runner and I write. So when I'm stuck, that's what I do. So I want to ask you, um, how much did that resonate with you, not being able to come up with the lyrics for one song? And what do you do when that happens? Well, I've never had writer's block, so I didn't really understand that part. No, I'm just kidding. uh, (laughs) All the time. Um, uh, That that resonates completely with me. Um, There are constant moments of being stuck. Um, And I do think it is that thing uh and there are, there's a lot of research into this i think of like doing those activities like running or swimming or uh the dishes even or going for a walk where your mind you you take your mind somewhere else you put it onto some another task and for some reason the answer that you've been searching for and you know and really clawing after and and struggling it just kind of pops up somehow Uh, and so, and it can be really hard when you're that focused and that determined to find the answer to something to actually go off track, but, but often that is the thing that, that you need to do. And so I do try to going on walks is, is one of my major, um, you know, tricks that I try, um, that, that tends to be the best for me, at least. Um, although running, I think would be good too, if I could have the discipline to do it. There are a couple of, uh, and Tick, Tick, Boom, I, I loved, uh, Sue, Sue loved it. I actually got to see it live because, um, again, I'm a, a nerd. Um, <laughs> I got to see it at the Coronet Theater in West Hollywood starring with Wilson Cruz in the cast, and I loved the show. I remember my dad was with me and the family, and mm. uh, my dad was so moved by that show. He so loved it. I, I remember that night really, really clearly. Oh, wow. Come to your senses. Defenses are not the way to go. And you know, or at least you knew. Everything's strange. You've changed and I don't know what to do to get through. I don't know what to do. I'm curious, you know, the, the evolution of Tick, Tick, Boom uh, from Jonathan Larson's sort of one-man monologue to David Auburn uh, turning in, into a three and then you breaking it out even further into a, mm-hmm. a broader story. How Did you feel pressure because it was Jonathan Larson's story? Absolutely. Um, I think... I think the the positive way of saying that is I felt a lot of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I felt a a great weight, um, and I know 
I think we all did. Um, to the the writer of this story isn't with us and wasn't there. Um, and so I I constantly had that feeling that I was sitting in his seat or the seat that should have been his. Um, and our, our hope from the beginning and our, our effort from the beginning was to try to honor what he had made and honor his intentions in making it and try to make something that we, that we felt he would have been proud of. Um, and so like the, what we really did in, in trying to build out this version is we went back to that solo show, I, which I didn't know before working on this. I only knew um, the three-person version that David Auburn did. Um, so it was really exciting to go back into the archives and dig up uh, John's scripts for those um, solo performances that he did uh, and get back to that, that original vision that he had for the show and, and to try to make it cinematic and widen the scope of it. But I, I think our hope was always to kind of not to make something different than he had made, but to kind of make what was in his head uh, appear on screen. Hmm. You know, in, in theater, you're always trying to abstract. You're always taking, you know, a, a scene that would have a hundred people and making it two people. Uh, and in a film, you're, you're kind of doing the opposite. And so that, that was what I thought was exciting was taking the, the abstractions that he had and making them real. You know, so in a, in a scene like No More uh, in the film where he's moving apart, or uh, his, his roommate, Michael, is, is moving apartments and you, and you sort of see the contrast between their terrible place um, downtown and, and, and his ex-roommates now, new place. We got to actually show those places in, in three dimensions. Um, and that's, that was really fun and exciting uh, for us. I love how um, <laughs> some of the lyrics were, I'm in an apartment on Central Park West. No, East. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> that, was, yes. that was so perfect. You know, <laughs> I, reading about Jonathan Larson, um, I, I, they said that his, he was influenced by The Who, which was, oh, wow. which may, which was no surprise to me because mm-hmm. when watching this film, it, it was reminiscent to me of, of Tommy, the rock yeah. opera. Absolutely. I mean, it, John didn't really have a lot of ancestors to look to. You know, there, there, there aren't really that many musicals before Rent that used like contemporary musical vernacular. Um, so, so that's no surprise to me either. The, the Who, like Tommy is one of the few. So for you as a writer, do you have to, when you're adapting something for the screen, do you have to think in pictures more? Yeah, you, I do. Um, and I, I think that is a big difference between, you know, a, a play, you're not really doing that. A play, you really are saying, oh, here's what, they're, here's what they say. And here, here's some action. Uh, and in a, in a screenplay, what, you, what I am always thinking of my job as being is guiding the director through how I see the film. And, and see being the operative word. Like, what is what am I seeing on screen uh, at every moment? And then it's, it's really up to the discretion of the director, like how much of my vision to use, if it's helpful, if it's not helpful, um, which is another difference with theater where uh, the playwright 
what you write really is kind of gospel. Um, and in film, it's, it's a little bit more uh, like an opening salvo. Um, and it's ultimately the director who's going to figure out how to put it all together. You know, just going back to the diner scene for a second, to me, um, seeing the front of the diner drop down, mm-hmm. to me, it was it was like the ultimate breaking of the fourth wall yeah, when, it, totally. when it became when it actually became a stage. And my interpretation, when it opened up like that, and he was surrounded by all these iconic Broadway um, stars, it was kind of like he wasn't going to be caged in by working at this diner too much longer. You know, uh, that, that was yeah. my interpretation of it. I love that. Yeah, no, I love that. For, for us, it was always just about this. This was the big moment to see his imagination at work. And that, um, you know, literally like uh, he's there slinging eggs and hash browns, but can escape into that other mind and see what's beautiful and what's musical. I, I have a question to ask you during, um, during a scene with Susan and Jonathan, when she comes to his apartment, when he mm. is not answering her calls and she yeah. says to him in the middle of the conversation, she kind of sees him thinking <laughs> and she says, you're thinking, how can you turn this into a song? Mm. I know you are. Yeah. Have you ever been busted by anybody in conversation? Yes. <laughs> I, I would say all the time, actually. I mean, not really, not quite, I'm going to turn this into a, a scene, but, but yes, my, my wife knows I get a sort of faraway look in my eyes and she's like, you're writing right now, aren't you? Uh, and, and by now it's so it happens all the time um and we we all sort of have tells which which lynn i remember lynn talking to andrew on set about that like what his tell was um and i forget what lynn's tell was um but for me it's definitely like a faraway look in my eyes and sometimes i will start mouthing words which is really unsettling um <laughs> and it, like i'm just sort of thinking about it and 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 yes, I, my lips start moving and, and that means I'm, I'm off somewhere else. Uh, you know, but I, yeah, th- this, this year we had in the Heights, uh, which was Lin-Manuel Miranda, just a brilliant mm-hmm. show come to film. We had dear Evan Hansen. Now we have tick, mm-hmm. tick, boom. Spielberg has West side story. It, is it a good time for, for musicals at the movies? Uh, apparently it is. I mean, it's, it's kind of like hard to tell. Uh, I think. It's very exciting that all of these musicals are getting made, obviously. And um, I think what's what's most exciting to me is that they come in all different shapes and sizes. You know, there's a musical uh, like In the Heights, which is such a spectacular, huge, uh, glorious production, um, that film. And then there's a movie like Tick, Tick, Boom, which is smaller and a little scruffier and a much smaller story and scope and scale. And, and I'm hoping that there's room for all of those. Um, and uh, I, I'm hoping audiences l- like these movies. I mean, I think some, something that has struck me is that it feels like over the past several years where we, we've kind of started searching for what is film, you know, like, like that has suddenly become a real question with, with Netflix and with uh, Hulu and Apple 
um, and Amazon, like, like what is a movie if, if it's all coming on your TV now, essentially, like, and it feels like musicals are one answer to that question. You know, there's something so inherently undeniably cinematic about a movie musical that, um, I think in a way it feels like a capital M movie in a way that, um, movies don't always feel these days. So I read that, um, I guess it was last year you were penned, you were noted to write, um, a revival of Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. Is that, is that going on? Uh, yeah, I've written, um, a draft of it and it's basically, you know, in the hands of Tommy Kale, the director and, and figuring out casting for it basically and, and hoping, um, we can find a cast for it. It's a, it's a tricky mu- uh, movie to cast as you would imagine. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite musicals and it's been, that's been a lot of fun to work on. Um, and kind of shocking, like writing it, realizing how, deeply in my DNA that show is. Um, Uh It's the first musical I ever saw. And I think just growing up like in a Jewish suburban house, like it just, I I realized I knew parts of that show that I didn't even realize. (laughs) Um, And that there were things about it that like, like there were, like there's a song in it, the Sabbath prayer song. Mm -hmm. I think I I hadn't quite thought about it, but like in, in getting to it, it, in the writing, I was like, I think I thought this was a real liturgical song when I was a kid. Like, I think I thought that this was actually something yeah. we would do in synagogue. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just love that show. Yeah, I, I totally relate to it growing up Jewish in New York as well, because we started the conversation talking about plays of our parents, you know, musicals yeah. of our parents. And my parents were, you know, that was that was like number one, you know, Carousel. You know, Man of La Mancha. I mean, those were the those were the Broadway musicals that I grew up listening to. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious in Fiddler on the Roof. Um, I played uh, Perchick in a production. Does Perchick's song make the cut? Because a lot of times, Perchick's song I used to tell myself winds up getting left on the on the cutting room floor or in certain productions. Does it make the cut? I feel like I probably am not allowed to say. Oh, okay, got it. <laughs> I'm realizing I was, uh, yeah, I probably shouldn't say I'll get in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. (laughs) So what's the state of Broadway like right now? Is it, is it successfully bouncing back from the pandemic or theaters? I haven't been to New York in a while. Are theaters full? Gosh, you know, it's hard to say. I think we're still finding the answer to that. Um, it seems like things are back for sure. Um, theaters are, are, shows are coming in and and shows are opening and apparently it's something like by December, there will be 31 shows on Broadway, which is more than uh, when it closed. Um, But I do think, you know, plays are really struggling in particular straight plays. Um, And I I think it's, it's sort of anyone's guess right now what the long term looks like. Tourism is a big question you know, mm-hmm. uh, in general in New York. Um, and obviously in a great way, the, the vaccination requirements are very strict in New York, um, and on Broadway. And, um, but, but it remains a big question. I think whether audiences are going to come back the way that they, they 
were coming last year and you know the year before or two years ago, I guess at this point. So I've always thought that writing a Broadway musical, like one of those great big, like I remember seeing Les Miserables for the first time or seeing Rent for the first time mm. and thinking, what a huge achievement. And, and I, if I could do that just one time, if I could create just one great thing, do you yeah. ever have that sense? And, and what does that feel like to know that you've, you've been part of one great landmark thing? Well, it's definitely, you know, I had this feeling uh, that I'll never forget in, in previews for Dear Evan Hansen. I think, I think, I know, you know what, it was rehearsals on Broadway. It was tech rehearsals on Broadway. And so the, the show was, was running and I remember I was in the balcony and they were doing a run through with the band and it was a song. I forget what song it was. And just thinking there's when you don't write music uh, as I don't um, and you write something that allows music to live, you know, or, or inspires music or the characters that you've helped create are singing. There's this weird feeling like this hugeness um, that I, 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 I was just kind of overwhelmed by the fact that like I had something to do with that. And so, yeah, I find that incredible. And I find, um, there is something about the way, as, as you know, as a fan of, of these shows, there's something about what it does to an audience when it really works for that audience, that there's just nothing like it. And to get to feel like, like you were a part of, of giving that to someone is, is really humbling. Um, and I, I have not experienced anything quite like it. Well, you've uh, you've done it again with Tick, Tick, Boom, which is oh, a you. fantastic film. It comes to theaters on November the 12th. It premieres on Netflix on November the 19th. You can also, I think, see Dear Evan Hansen when it returns to Broadway on December 11th, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, Absolutely. And, it, and it will be touring uh, in the meantime. I forget when the tour begins, but, but a little bit sooner than Broadway. So, and, and you can see the movie Dear Evan Hansen, I think, on demand on Amazon yeah. Prime and stuff like that. I strong recommend on that. Hey, Stephen, thank you so much for doing this. Congratulations on the movie. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was such a pleasure. All right, Sue, can you tell? Can you tell I love Broadway? Yeah, well, I know you were in all your glory when we have guests like this. Oh, God. Tick, tick, boom is so good. Um, and I do remember seeing it on stage really, really clearly. And my dad was there and was unbelievably moved, which was really cool. Really and that cool. was a small space that you saw it in the car. Oh, now. yeah. Very small theater. Very mm. small theater. Wilson Cruz was great. Wilson Cruz has been on the on the show before. Um, I And I do think when I walk out of a great show, I'm like, what it must be to have written that. What it <sighs> must be to have made that staggering accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, how many songs are in a play, you yeah, know, yeah. 10, 12, you know, whatever. And they're all, you know, which does that actually one of the songs that I love so much, um, just because it was so kind of fun and kitschy was the one, um, the romance song when it was like so literal. It's like you thought that I thought, oh, God, you know, that's and your so reaction good. to my reaction, you know. 
Oh God, what a great, great song. Yeah, it is and so, so good. beautifully done. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. And Andrew Garfield, I mean, forget about it. That right. guy can do just Hutchins, about anything. I mean, she was incredible. She was great. She was great. Yeah. Uh, such a good movie. Go uh, check it out. It'll be on Netflix. Tick, tick, boom is fantastic. Um, all right. Uh, it is time, Sue, to talk about my friend, Jacob Romani. Love Jacob. So he and I text all the time. And I, I tell you that just because he's a regular guy. Like he's a regular guy. He's a Lakers fan. He's the official law firm of the LAFC. He follows the Dodgers. He follows the Rams. I mean, he's he's a regular dude. Uh, he coaches his uh, kids in soccer and uh, coaches them in basketball. And my understanding is coaches them really well. Um, if you want the biggest and the best when you are involved in some kind of accident, motorcycle accident, car accident, whatever that happens to be, maybe it's you, maybe it's your wife or your kid or a friend, uh, you definitely want the biggest and the best, somebody who's been doing this for 24 years. But you also want somebody who's going to give you personal attention. He's a real attorney. He's also a real guy that you can deal with who will help you get through the really complicated process of, uh, of getting a claim uh, handled with the insurance company and ultimately getting you the maximum compensation. So remember, accident injury 84424 Jacob. That's 84424 Jacob. 84424 Jacob. Or remember, accident or injury. Call Jacob and Ronnie. Call, Call Jacob. Jacob. Yeah, I we're getting, I came in a little early. You came in, yeah, you were early. That's all right. Yeah. Uh, premature. Premature. <laughs> Uh, that was fun today. That was fun today. Really excited about that. Uh, have a uh, have a great uh, vacation. Thank you, Steve. And I'll talk to you uh, in the middle of the month. In the middle of the <laughs> month. And uh, don't forget, if you are listening right now, you can hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. We always appreciate that. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast. <laughs>